Hello and welcome to this edition of the Mag Debrief. We're looking at the 6th of November issue this week and we have another new lineup. I know you had a new lineup last week, but we have a new another new one. So I'm back. I'm John Severs, commissioning editor at Tez. I'm with Gronia Hallahan, who is our recruitment editor, and Helen Amas, who is our deputy commissioning editor. Hello to you both. Hi, John. So uh, let's get started. Uh, Gordon, do you want to get us started by talking about your cover feature this week, which uh, is looking at quite an interesting phenomenon that happened during lockdown or was amplified during lockdown? Yes. So my cover this week is all about um, the idea of self-diagnosis and the problems that this raises in schools. So simply the idea that parents with children who they suspect might have um, learning difficulties or additional learning needs will turn to the internet to look for reasons behind the problems that their children have and then themselves diagnose them with problems and then present this to the schools and then the consequences of this. It was interesting. Actually, did I tell you how I came up with the idea for this one? You can tell us your story. My story. So um, I come from a family of lots of teachers and as, as teachers are, we tend to sort of marry other teachers and have teacher children and I was away with my mum and dad who are both teachers and my little brother who's a teacher and my sister who works in education too and um, we were talking about uh, this problem that they they'd had in their their schools and how it seemed to be happening more and um, at that point I was sort of thinking more about unusual diagnosis that that parents come up with but actually when I started speaking to more people and talking to others about it it seemed to be more about the the classic um three that's how one one teacher described it as being about autism adhd and dyslexia and that that was the most common one and the article looks at why it is those those three that come up so often and how you can then work in towards a a happier future with those parents as looking at whether that diagnosis is appropriate and if it's not what do you do then and how can you make sure you maintain a positive relationship with the family i mean the context of this is that the send system is a mess um like getting a diagnosis getting support getting your echp it's it's an it's a it's a nightmare for parents and you know there's a parent quoted in the piece saying you know they're they're pushed towards sort of you know internet diagnosis at a loss to describe their what's happening with their child and the complexity increases because lots of children mask in school and go home and just sort of explode into all this anxiety and and this pent-up I guess symptoms that they've managed to control during the school day and so the experience of a parent and the experience of a school can be very different but aside but you know moving on from that there's the piece demonstrates there's also another group where they're very you know normal behaviors during lockdown were medicalized and you know a child may have acted in a certain way in a very hyper vigilant environment and you know oh he looks a bit autistic or maybe he's got adhd because he can't sit and do his work for an hour and a half and it's that problem that the Senkos really are struggling with, it seems, that parents are coming in saying, oh, my child's got autism or, he, he, or my child's got ADHD because this is how he acted during lockdown. And the Senkos are going, well, hang on, this is, this is normal behaviour. 
It's um, it, it was interesting when I was doing the interviews and the Senkos were describing this. I felt um quite personally attacked as that <laughs> described myself quite well in lockdown. And I was thinking about how I was watching my my five year old um sit and read and try and 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 write. And I was thinking, what is wrong with her? What is wrong with her? Why can't she do this? And then when I was speaking to other people, it turns out that five year olds actually aren't very good at sitting for long periods of time and reading and writing. Who'd have thought of it? Who knew? Who knew? Every YFS practitioner in the country could have told you that. Um, But that is the thing. And I think when we talk about SEN and when we talk about um, self-diagnosis, we have to be really careful not to lump everyone in together because it's a huge spectrum of of experience. At one end, you have a parent who's rightly fighting for a diagnosis that they, they, they they can't push through. And the internet becomes a real tool for that person to... To, to create evidence to, to find that diagnosis. At the other extreme, you have this, this medicalization of normal behavior. But also fascinating is the middle group where there is a problem, but the internet leads parents to the wrong conclusion. And there's a brilliant quote from Asenko in the piece saying, you know, I've never had a parent come in and talk to me about um, language development delay. Yet that is the most common then we find children have. It's yeah. always autism, ADHD, and dyslexia because they're the most known. And I think what the piece does really well is is talk about how schools can navigate that in a really sensitive way that a parent may truly believe a diagnosis, but when that diagnosis occur, becomes something different, how you know parent blame is rife, um, teacher blame is rife, and actually working together is the important bit. And you've got some really nice quotes in there from some Senkos on that. Yes, and I think, and, and Helen will know from her time in the classroom, that this is the most important bit. You need to maintain a positive relationship with the parents because otherwise you're going to, to lose that home support, which is so important. And we, we, need to have a, in, we need to have from our parents in order for students to be successful at school. And especially where SEND is concerned, I think that, that being able to work with the parents is is really really critical isn't it and and you you certainly don't want to do anything that's going to kind of uh push that relate you know push that relationship in the wrong direction do you um you know as two ex-teachers do you were you ever surprised by a diagnosis that a child actually received in the end i mean how effective did you find masking was in, in the classroom well i mean there was always there's always a spectrum i mean you know you would have students who you wouldn't necessarily have thought at first glance, but I, but I do think that you know the way that it's set up in schools that in in some ways the send system is a mess. But I think there's also you know loads of brilliant senkos doing really really good effective work, and I think that if you are lucky enough to work with someone like that in your school, um, then they are able to provide you with you know the advice and support you need um, and help you to kind of make sense of it all. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't say there was anything that was that I was unprepared to deal with because of the support I had. I mean, I don't know if you found the same, Gronya. I think it's it, when I think back to what it was like when I was an NQT and I came into teaching with quite a good understanding of SEN because of my own personal background and having family members who worked in a special needs school and and, um, and other reasons. But I think as I, the longer I was in the classroom, the better my understanding of special, different special educational needs and how to best help those students and working with, like you say, really excellent Zenkos who can, 
shared their expertise with you, it got better. But I definitely think there's a really strong argument to spend more time during ITT um, actually working with teachers on mm. strategies for teaching students with different types of SEN because some strategies it's just good teaching, just normal good teaching. But for some students, it really does require a knowledge of what their, their needs will require you to do as a teacher. I suppose I, I was a, a teaching assistant before I became a teacher. So I sort of probably did come to it with that kind of background, which is perhaps what you're talking, you know, what you're talking about. That's the kind of thing that we need to have in the ITT is that same sort of experience of working really quite closely with a lot of different special educational needs um, before you even come to doing, you know, uh, leading the class yourself. Yeah. I think as uh, you make a point about the Senkos as well, that they are, you know, parents often see them as part of the, the problem and actually they are battling the same chaotic Sen system that the parents are. And, you know, I talk to Senkos a lot and they, they tell me that the, the paperwork alone, they, they, they could sit in a room for five days a week and not get through the paperwork required and not even see a child. And I think something needs to change and there's been some really good advocacy from whole school send and and groups like that and and you know prominent voices like simon knight or vegeta patel who are really pushing this but it becomes a marginal issue when it's a mainstream issue and i think hopefully features like this one will will make people think again about how complex that system is to navigate for everyone Let's move on to Helen Amas's feature this week. Well, you didn't write it, Helen, but it, it's no, one I didn't. you commissioned and it's one you've edited, so you know it well. Yeah, and it's one that um, that I found really interesting to really interesting when I was reading it. Um, this has been written by Sophia Niemtis, um, who works with us here at TES, uh, and it is the um, further education feature this week, uh, and it's looking at the social impact of uh, COVID nineteen on students in colleges. Um, obviously, 16 to 19 age group is, um, is, is, is a slightly different one because they are that much older. So they're sort of slightly more at risk from, uh, of, of, of contracting COVID in a more serious way. Um, so there's a lot more distancing and um, sort of uh, measures in place around that. Whereas, you know, primary schools and, and EYFS, for example, that the children are able to to mix um, a lot more freely, whereas in colleges it's really quite strict um, in terms of whether they can eat together, you know, how the bubbles are, are, are sort of cut off from one from each other. Um, and, and lots of colleges, lots of different courses are doing, um, you know, fully sort of blended learning or remote learning. So they're really kind of cut off from their friends and those social circles that are a really important part of their development at that age. Um, and Sophia's looked into this and uh, she's found that while in the kind of here and now, um, a lot of students are struggling with not being able to see their friends and not have that kind of face-to-face personal interaction and missing out on lots of the kind of rites of passages like uh, attending prom and, you know, picking up their grades in person, all of that kind of stuff over the summer, which they might have missed out on. Um, but the long-term effects aren't looking as negative as you might assume um, and speaking to some of the college leaders uh, in the piece they're sort of giving a picture of difficult in the here and now but students are already kind of starting to bounce back and as soon as they do get to see their friends again things are sort of 
ticking along as normal and that actually they're fairly optimistic that it's not going to have a really negative long-term impact on the students. It's interesting because that group of kids would have left school with teachers really fearing for them because they had Mm. such a disrupted year last year, had the fiasco of the GCSEs and then went into a college experience that was completely alien to a lot of them unless they went to their school sick form but even then it's it, it tends to be quite a marked difference so you can see in Zofia's piece how isolating that could possibly be to these these kids where they can't form those new friendships that perhaps they wanted and yeah there is there's obviously a positive side to that that those 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 students are actually thinking about who they like more you know who is worth who is who is welcome in my bubble of six um which is perhaps making them choose more but i guess when i went to college one of the one of the biggest boosts for me was socially and you know academically it was you know it was okay i was you know meandering along in the words of my uh, old history teacher not putting up but not putting as much effort in as i could but it was really a social transformation for me going to college and seeing new people and and broadening my friendship groups and different experiences and it's it's sad that they're not getting that I think or not getting that to the same extent that opportunity to reinvent yourself that students often take when they they go into year 12 that, is this personal experience going no, like oh I, I did I obviously reinvented myself when I went to year 12 I, what were you and what did you become well I was um uh, like a little grunger like really? a yeah slip not hoodie no, 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 that's not grunge. Um, like I had, <laughs> please don't, <laughs> like a, a, I think it was a Nirvana hoodie. You're too and... young for Nirvana. You're too young for Nirvana, surely. I'm the same age as you. Exactly. I was too young for Nirvana. I definitely wasn't too young for Nirvana. And like Green Day and... Um, Green Day, yeah. Yeah. And Blink. then when I went into Sixth Form College, I obviously realised that... Um, that wasn't the best way to meet members of the opposite sex. It was more effective to, to dress. And I used to like um, wearing lots of pencil skirts and shirts and going for like a sort of secretarial um, smarts. So you did a Sandy from Greece, Gronje? Yeah, yeah. I wanted um, <laughs> to do that. And one girl tried to blow my cover and told all the boys that I used to be a, a Grebo. I was like, I'll get you, Romy. Um, but nobody cared because I. You transformed yourself so that fully. Does it? That... That's what you're allowed to do when you go to college. You can just become somebody different. And uh, that, and all of that doesn't work so well over Zoom. That's the thing, you know. No, and I so if you're having your freshers event for your, um, you know, first week of sixth form college uh, on your laptop, you don't you miss out on all of that. You can't announce yourself as a uh, as. I can't quite work out what you were aiming for, but whatever it was you were aiming for. I was going for like preppy, like that's like... Gap, gap advert. Is that yes. Yeah. And I got a job at Topshop and I just used to really rinse my staff discount. That's good. Good times. I loved college. Well, I guess, I guess uh, that, that transformation attempt is, is indicative <laughs> of, uh, of what kids try and do at the time. And it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon. That's, that's that's the problem i guess i mean we keep being promised a vaccine and and such but those measures are going to continue and you've written in the past telling about how important friendships are in terms of academic attainment and it seems like this group of students are going to keep hitting this wall covid wall as as such where you know there's there's disadvantage there and i think 
it, it has to be acknowledged that their experience mm. is so different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what the sort of the, the message of the piece is, you know, young people are resilient and um, we should kind of have faith that they will be okay. But that doesn't mean, like you say, that, that they're not going to be facing really different challenges. And, and they've obviously gone through a really different sort of formative experience in these years than, you know, say all of, all of us went through. Um, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, you know, we don't know what kind of the effect is going to be, but um, it, it it does it does need to be acknowledged. Like you say, we can't just assume that we can um, everything is going to go completely back to normal, and you know, exams will continue as normal, and and, and all of these things because um, these issues are going to continue for a long time, and particularly for older students who are um, being more effective in terms of distancing and things like that. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely going to have some kind of impact. So, to our last feature, would you say you're a smiley person, Ellen? Uh, probably not. No, how about I think you? maybe maybe it depends on the situation. And how about you, Gronya? Yeah, I'm a smiley person. You are. I I'm not. I think I may have resting bitch face. No, I think Helen's smiley though. Yeah. In the piece, we talk about resting bitch face. It's a horrible derogatory term and, and it's normally aimed at women. But there, are, there is science to say that some people just have a miserable face. And I, I think I might be one of them. Maybe I don't have a miserable face, but I just have a miserable, you know, I feel like I'm being miserable. You're the not. Re- <laughs> people annoy me so much. The reason this feature looks at this is because there's some really good evidence that smiley teachers have a really positive impact on their students in multiple ways and when I commissioned Carly to write this piece it's Carly Page one of our writers she I said to her well what if if smiling is so important what happens if you're not a smiley teacher what happens if you're one of those teachers who isn't particularly upset or, or annoyed or irritable but just their resting face is slightly miserable or does look irritable and it turns out that both men and women are, can be afflicted by this, uh, this resting angry face, I'll call it, because it's a much better word. Um, and so I was interested in thinking about who around the office had one. Who, <laughs> and, and I think mainly it's just me. Um, I wouldn't say either of you two are particularly resting angry face. Um, but have you really thought about your smile? Have you ever thought about how effective that was, especially when you were both teachers? To be honest, I think it's one of those things that, no, never would have crossed my mind, but that you would probably do instinctively. You know, I think that um, it's one of the first things that they look for with in child development, isn't it? Whether, whether you can do social smiling. Um, social smiling social smiling and uh i I remember the the doctor checking for that you know trying desperately trying to get my daughter to smile in front of the doctor to show that she could definitely do it um and yeah so i I think it's it's one of those really really early mechanisms that we have for kind of connecting with people and if you're trying to connect with your students then i think you know automatically that's what that's what you're going to turn to and it's that even when you're having a really bad day, you can't let your class know that you're having a bad day. You've just got yeah. to be smiley and fake, fake happy because otherwise you just bring the whole mood of the room down. And sometimes you need to be cross, but most of the time you, you want to use your 
smiley persona to try and show them that you're happy to be there and happy to be teaching them so they're happy to be in your class and happy to be learning otherwise it just makes for a really miserable classroom and it's, it's interesting the piece pinpoints you know smiling has a positive impact on attainment it has a positive impact on student teacher relationships it has a positive impact on student mood student well-being i mean wide-ranging benefits and so it, we go back to these, the teachers who it doesn't come as naturally to. And Carly looked at the fact, well, can you fake it? You know, you just explained, you know, you go in, you're feeling like miserable, but you, you put the smile on. Can they spot it? It turns out they can. They do know if you're faking a smile. Really? But it doesn't actually matter because oh, okay. it still has the same effect. And, you know, this is the contagion effect that if you smile, the kids smile back at you. And then your reward system in your brain goes, oh, they're smiling at me. This is nice. And then you smile more genuinely. And there's this feedback loop of actually a fake smile kicks off all sorts of benefits too. That's why with some classes, it's really easy to be a smiley, happy teacher because you'll have kids in the class who are just natural smiley people themselves. Mm. And they make that whole smiley circle of cycle of happiness that I like that you've just described that I think is brilliant, really easy. In other classes where you've got really moody kids that are, just have got um don't have that same sort of smiley demeanor it makes it much more difficult and yeah yeah it's a, it's a strange one isn't it it brings me to face masks because i mean this piece was commissioned six six weeks ago and you know we have a long lead time and we don't actually go into the issue of face masks because at that point it wasn't really something that was a a viable option in the classroom some teachers you know in some schools i've heard have been wearing a face mask but lots of them are saying, no, I could never teach with a face mask. And the reason is that they worry about how students will read them and the relationship side. And subconsciously, I think that is an acknowledgement of the importance of specifically your mouth in teaching. I know that sounds bizarre, but the ability to convey nuance or sarcasm or, or happiness, as we've talked about here, is so important to, to building that relationship that a face mask is is almost like a, a barrier. It seems it seems to be seen as, and I guess we're approaching a point, perhaps in the next few weeks, where where masks will be made mandatory in the classroom. And what do you think teachers? How do you think teachers will balance the the two sides of this, the the health protection side of this, and the the classroom side, you know, the teaching side of it? I think it's really important for students who've got hearing loss who are EAL or new arrivals to the country and, and have a struggle with um, uh, understanding English still and students who have special educational needs, which means that they find um, seeing somebody's face makes it, be, it makes it easy for them to understand and to communicate. Um, having face masks where you've got a clear panel and you can still see somebody's mouth is really important. And I, I hope that schools do look at providing teachers with those face masks because it's really important to be inclusive and having your face covered when you're talking, especially in primary when so much of our communication is non-verbal communication, wearing a face mask and teaching is going to be really, really challenging and really difficult. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be incredibly difficult. I mean, I find just if I go to my local shop and try to have a conversation with the person behind the counter, that's really hard in a face mask. And that's not in front of a class full of 30, 30 students who you might be needing to kind of discipline and send those kind of like 
nonverbal behavior cues to, for example, um, I think it's going to make teachers' jobs incredibly difficult if they do have to wear face masks while teaching. And I know that, um, you know, I've seen some teachers on Twitter talking about wearing a kind of clear visor instead of a mask. But I mean, that offers sort of different, um, it's not the same level of, level of protection. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think it will be a huge challenge. I think this is one of the things about face masks that really the science has failed there in communicating what they're for. Mm. Um, I hear so many people saying, thinking a mask means that they can not socially distance. If I've got a mask on, it's fine. But it doesn't mean that at all. You still have to socially distance because, you know, the, all the mask does is, is, is capture the large molecules that, that you can project. The airborne particles are still getting through, so you still have to socially distance. And there's people saying, though, don't need to wear a mask outdoors well actually we've me and helen have discovered just this morning that you know if you're still in a crowded place masks are still really important even if you're in an outdoor well-ventilated space and the, and again with the visors there's quite good evidence now saying that visors aren't that effective in mm. in even stopping the big big particles because they just drop down the bottom of the mask onto whichever surface you mean they do protect from projecting those at someone but they're still going to drop on surfaces and it just seems there's a real failure, I, I think, on, on the, the messaging around masks. And, you know, I don't know how you guys have fared in the playground or for you, Helen, outside nursery, but I think people do just abandon all social distancing when it comes to masks. Yeah, I, I agree that messaging, it's, there's definitely a failure there because I think that, you know, I've I've sort of written about masks for online and 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 spoken to some experts in this area and I, I feel like I'm fairly well informed now and every time there's a new um, you know rule that comes in around masks like we were talking about you know wearing them to to drop students at school I will still think oh that's surely pointless that's not going to be you know worthwhile because it's not being communicated exactly how the masks work. And um, I think that's really important. And it, it, it perhaps does seem a bit complicated, but at the same time, I think that if people understand how things work and why the masks are effective, then surely they're more likely to actually follow the guidance. Whereas if you just have the guidance on its own, you know, I, it, it, it's of course gonna be um, seem not as worthwhile as if, it's well explained. I like the fact that at the moment masks are becoming quite a fashion. We're going to go back to your transformation here, Gronio. I think. I mean, what masks do you have? I have a black mask because subconsciously I think it's quite manly, which is appalling really, isn't it? It shows how vulnerable my masculinity really is. Um, but what mask do you have? Are you concerned that if you wear a flowery one, people are going to think you're a woman? Do you know what? No, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I haven't thought, given it enough thought, but I feel like my subconscious is at work. That you know, black a black mask might may be more manly. Is this why you have a beard? It's not. I I have a bit. I don't know why I have a beard. Actually, just to like make sure everybody knows that you are definitely a man. (laughs) Yeah, I'm that alpha. (laughs) But apparently, our news editor, our deputy news editor Charlotte, was saying to me that uh, patterned floral masks are very much the in thing in the playground. Um, I've just ordered silk masks that I've, I highly doubt their effectiveness, but apparently it's better for your skin. <laughs> I'm, um, like a mug, I've ordered these. <laughs> and um, and I, I've also got black masks because I just think it's it's simple. 
but I've just got, I've got I've, I ordered a, like a multi-pack of kind of pastel colours online pastel because colors. Steve my, my husband's got black masks and I have to be different to him so that's what he decided on but I saw someone um, my favourite so far was was a was a man queuing outside the local supermarket who had a full welding mask on and I think I mean that's commitment to the cause Amazing. It, it was it was joyous um but before we go, I, need, I want to talk about one last thing, which is there's an interesting column this week by Laura May Rowlands about um, the, the lunch crimes in schools. And she has particular anger for microwave hogs, as she calls them, people yeah. in the staff room who decide to microwave the stinkiest food. And as someone who's never really been in a staff room, I just wanted to, before we go, ask you both whether you were ever a microwave hog. The silence suggests yes in both probably, cases. Probably, probably at some point. No, yeah. I, I never had microwave food. Is it I such never, a I don't, I don't actually own a microwave. What? No, what need do it. you do? How do you, re, how do you, a hob. what do you do with your leftovers? On a hob? Hob, hob, or heat it up in the oven. Don't need a microwave. Old school. Yeah. Is, it, is it a real sin in a is stinky food still such a sin yeah in, in so i used room? to eat um tuna which is pretty rank isn't it so i wasn't a microwave hog, but i had really stinky lunches when in the tes the uh, old tes business lounge offices you know when we were back in when we actually used to work in an office they um they had those like no fish signs on the microwave doors do you remember <laughs> that the, the, the receptionists had put on because the the stink was so bad when people would microwave their fish What's just wrong with food. sandwiches? I mean, yeah. just, have, just have sandwiches for dinner, people. But I guess in the inner staff room, those little things begin to matter more. Oh, we had the most complicated system about how much we had to pay in for the, the tea and coffee. And like, if you had, how much milk did you consume? Were you a, a tea drinker and you had cereal in the morning? Then you had to pay more. And then there was a rotor for doing the dishwasher. And um, the dishwasher was really hard to do because you'd, you never really knew when it was finished. You'd often open it up and it was still get like a facial steam going everywhere. And oh, um, the toasters, the toasters got taken off everybody because somebody set off the fire alarm by burning think, the toaster. I think for next pod, I think we should ask people, our listeners to, to tweet us with the biggest staff room crimes and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll deliver them on the podcast next week and tell you the best ones. I think burning toast in the toaster is as bad as putting really stinky food in the microwave because you've got the added risk of having to do a fire drill. Well, if anyone can best those in the next week before we record this again next Tuesday, this goes out on a Thursday, but you've got till Tuesday to, to tell us the worst crimes. Um, we, will, we will send a prize to the best one, uh, maybe a certificate for worst crime. That's about as much as we can offer at the moment, a sanitised uh anti-backed certificate to the to the to the worst offender laminate it. we'll laminate it and we'll make sure it's all covid secure um so that's all from us i hope you enjoy the magazine this week and we will be back next week 